0: Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives.
1: Hi, this is Gary Sheffer.
2: And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University.
1: Let's talk, Mike, this week about some of the things we've touched on a little bit in the past, but it just continues to be something that uh, people in our profession and business and more largely are facing is the expectation uh, that they are going to be engulfed by or involved in political issues uh, no matter who we are. We saw two uh, examples of that over the past few weeks. Walmart with the situation in El Paso, uh, the terrible tragedy there, um, and the New York Times writing an open letter to their CEO, Doug McMillan, Saying they should use their market power um, to affect the sale of guns in the U.S., ultimately, to, to get rid of assault weapons, I would assume, uh, was the point that was an Andrew Ross Sorkin letter to McMillan. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the, the backlash that Soul Cycle Equinox has faced, given that their CEO, um, a billionaire, uh, has faced for hosting a fundraiser for uh, for President Trump. And uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is one of our colleagues uh, from BU, uh, Cabrina Chang, who's over at the Questrum School of Business, and I think she's right about this, was quoted in a Bloomberg piece this week saying, the more people look to business to make a political statement, the more danger it is for business not to make a political statement. The, well, the it's like you're going to be dr-
2: yeah. So you're going go to be ahead, dragged in ahead. no matter what, right? I mean, that's that's right. that's kind of her point. And, and in both of these two cases that you cite, so in the Walmart case, they're 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 selling guns, they're selling ammo, at, and it's it's one of their product lines. Long has been one of their product lines. So then, an event like this happens, and then they're sort of called out, and uh, and, and and they really haven't probably thought through. Uh, whether they should decide not to sell guns or not. But now they're in the crosshairs of public opinion. And then in the Soul Cycle case, you and I both have worked in corporations where it's almost a fait accompli that at a certain time of silly season around politics, you're asked, particularly by incumbents, uh, will you hold a fundraiser or can you come to a fundraiser? Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I think, executives, without asking questions, without thinking about the consequences, other than, you know, they want to have a relationship, they want to have an open door with said politician, whether that's a Republican or a Democrat, they don't necessarily think about what issues that politician has taken a stand on, because a United States senator or a congressman or a president literally so right. probably has taken positions on hundreds of issues, right? And, uh, and so there's a little bit of this challenge between normally people are giving political dollars for access from a business community standpoint or at least to have some kind of a relationship. And now what's happening in a world of Gen Z, millennial workforce that has come to work, not just to work, but also to good, do good and hopeful that their employer does good, lots of questions are being raised around what has been kind of normal practice
1: in the past. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, this I, I've had in the past month two clients, to the point you make, Ask me about fundraisers. Well, how should we be prepared because we're doing fundraisers with this politician or, or that? And, uh, you know, it all comes down to values. And making yeah. sure the people in your organization understand uh, why you're doing the fundraiser. And in one case where you disagree with uh, on a particular issue, you're not going to agree with everybody on everything. It's actually exactly. a line you find in most of these things. And that's what that's what uh, uh, Walmart did. They posted a letter on their website to employees, and McMillan, uh, Doug McMillan, said they'd consider the broader national discussion around uh, gun violence and act in a way that reflects the best values and ideals of our company. And then a few days later, you may have heard they removed some yep. of the violent imagery from games and other things mm-hmm. from their store. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just think it's being. It, it requires you to be really straight with both your people inside the organization and outside the the company about Absolutely. your values.
2: Yeah, and, and I've gotten into discussions with clients around uh, things that could become lightning rods, and can we uh, remove uh, some of those risks even quietly uh, before they become issues Uh, So that if you're looking at giving money to candidates, or maybe there are candidates you've given money to in the past, going up and down that list and saying, are any of these individuals, based on uh, political positions or issues that are out there today, do they effectively become lightning rods? And if so, maybe this year we do something different. We don't actually contribute from the company pack. And maybe if a few executives want to contribute to them their personal money, then fine, let them do that. Uh, But, you know, it's free country, um, and and it's all protected by the first amendment. But I think a lot of political action committees are going to start to make different calls as a consequence. I think the same thing goes for decisions around uh, product lines and what those Mm -hmm. product lines uh, say and convey about certain public policy questions and kind of begin to think about, okay, what could get in harm's way? Now, we also have examples where companies, partly because of positioning and where they ultimately would end up, but also thinking about the consequences of, just a second here, so CVS, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, drugstores. Uh, decided yes. well. Fundamentally, they health were company. about hell. They decided yes. they could no longer sell tobacco products as a consequence of that. And uh, now, what we didn't know at the time is that was also teeing up a larger question about them literally entering the healthcare market in a bigger yep. way. And, exactly. and you know, they, they ultimately did a did a uh, a merger and an acquisition in that space. Uh, that said, I think a lot more companies are going to have to take the time to do kind of an issues audit associated with their product lines associated right. with their political activity in order
1: to be both well versed
2: as well as well prepared for what might
1: come next yes and 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 for so that that needs to be led or um, uh, heavily involved with
0: the communicator.
1: And his or her team. And, um, you know, it's often, you know, I've been through some situations in my career where it's your job to tell the business executives, the CEO, whomever, that by making a decision, let's say in this case, to sell guns, you are making a political statement in the eyes of many of your stakeholders. It It is is a political statement. That's and right. um and so uh, just so that they're aware of it and that you can be prepared as you say um for the response. So, yeah, cuz
2: uh, it could have uh, consequences economically, not just reputationally. Uh the other side of this and, and and sort of the other side of the coin and it'll be interesting to see what happens particularly in the soul cycle case where you have lots of people saying as a consequence, I know I still have two months on my SoulCycle membership. I'm no longer going to participate. Um, right. Oftentimes, the words don't necessarily match up to the actions. We saw, the action, We see yeah. this. We, we we see this over and over again. I mean, United Airlines when they had their issues after uh, their reputational hit after Doctor Dow got pulled off of the plane. Then the question was, okay, so how many people who said they would no longer fly United actually ended up flying United? Uh, the reality right. is that the economic, if if you kind of you know pull the pieces out, it seemingly if it had any kind of economic impact on United at all, it was very short term.
1: Yeah, exactly, and we saw it too, Mike. With just a week or so ago with the headline on the New York Times about the president's speech on guns, where um, they reported sort of straightforward that, you know, Trump urges unity versus racism. Well, there was a, you know, sort of a deluge of of people on Twitter and other social media saying they're canceling their subscriptions to the New York Times. And I I would Mm -hmm. bet, as you say, that the number is much smaller than the expression um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so you, the
0: flip you have side, to be. And the
2: flip side, the flip side of what I just said is actually the most effective boycotts ever were actually some years ago, but they had a, a tinge of both morality and economics associated with them, and as a consequence, they worked. So, could this change in an era where you have Gen Zs and millennials? wanting uh, the companies that they work for, that they buy from, that they interact with, to be morally, more morally pure? Maybe, because you almost have to go back to the United Farm Workers in California, and Cesar right. Chavez, or go to Rosa Parks in the Montgomery bus boycott to find boycotts that were really effective.
1: Exactly. Exactly, there are websites today that track the political positions of companies or the the uh, policies um, that they and practices that they have, and how that might affect political issues. But I'm with you. I, I haven't seen a demonstrated case recently mm-hmm. where one of these boycotts has been economically devastating to uh, yeah. to a company, particularly a big one. All right, so it's mid-August when we're taping this. So it's mm-hmm. sort of the sleepy days of summer. You and I are mm-hmm. both preparing to go back and start teaching again in a few weeks at Boston University. Mm-hmm. And summer is mm-hmm. traditionally a time when, when professors like you and I, I can't believe I'm saying that, like, um, <laughs> take a step back, do some learning. Uh, what, what have you learned? What kind of books you've read this summer? Anything? I wish, uh, even... well,
2: first, of all, first of all, in terms of your context, I wish I had taken a step back. I have been incredibly busy this summer. Uh, all my of that. Said, uh, there's a, there's a book that really uh caught my eye and and there are other books that I've been, been interested in and I've read over over the summer, but the one that really was interesting to me uh, was uh, a book by Cass Sunstein. Cass was a uh, Professor at University of Chicago, he became kind of the he's a big believer in nudge theory. He wrote a book on that with Richard Thaler to make nudge theory uh, more accessible uh, to the non-technical types like me. Um, but he became the regulatory are for the Obama administration. He's now a professor at Harvard University, but he's for. For people in the world of communications, whether you're a marketer or a PR person, I highly recommend his book that came out toward the end of May called Conformity, The Power mm-hmm. of Social Influences. And what's interesting, you know, keeping in mind, you know, we now live in an era of tribalism, polarization, and intense, you know, social division. And we're separating people along political lines, along religious and race ethnicity and gender, and, you know, what conformity does is it gives us some better understanding is how does that happen, you know, and, uh, and kind of how it works, and how might someone be able to get an argument through um, in the multiple echo chambers that have been created in this flood of conformity, where at least there's conformity within these various tribal units. Uh, and, 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 the, and the sad part is a lot of the conformity is seemingly leading uh, to creating even greater distance. That's the odd thing here. You, know, you think of conformity, exactly. oh, we're going to all agree, but we agree in pockets. And it's the creation of those pockets that kind of fuel the world of fake news. That fuel growing authoritarianism. Uh, that fuel, you know, people wanting to limit others' speech in various ways. So anyway, it, it, it's a great read, very accessible, and I highly recommend it to our listeners.
1: Yeah, that's terrific. It's actually sitting right here on my desk as oh, I talk to you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on that. I'll I'll take a. A similar but a, a different um, the, the the series on HBO Chernobyl was oh, yeah. um, about about the nineteen eighty six meltdown explosion and meltdown of the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl um, and uh, and it's a story it's a series that's not a documentary it's a uh, it's a drama uh, it was just really powerful uh, just amazingly powerful about what really happened there and the impact on not only the people who uh, the families who had loved ones passed away and the firefighters and all of that, but that entire community and nation. And there are some people who actually believe, and I think Gorbachev, the former premier, has said what really brought down uh, the Soviet Union was not um, the strength of the U.S., but in some ways, Chernobyl. Um, Mm -hmm. But the power of facts ultimately to be known. Um, The Soviets did the best they could to cover up what really happened at Chernobyl. It was actually a scientist who helped to uh, uh, work on and contain the damage done by it to both humans and the the, the environment, who told his story. And it, it is really just powerful about the need for human beings for the truth to be heard and so that was one thing that uh, I really learned from that, that we may be frustrated today, Mike, by mm-hmm. uh, people not listening to facts or uh, the, some of the tribalism and, and, and sort of thought bubbles that people feel themselves trapped in. But I always feel over the long term that history will write itself in an accurate and factual way. And that's what I took away from from Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I know you went to uh, a conference recent, recently and, and I went to one that really uh, uh, sparked my interest in, and my interest has gotten deeper and deeper over the summer in behavioral science. And of course we've, we've, we've had uh, uh, Chris Graves on the show. Um, and, uh, but it's interesting to see how it truly is beginning to take root uh, with communications and with new style online products. Uh, I got to, when I went to, uh, stock 2019, in, uh, in the UK, uh, this summer, uh, listen to will page who's the chief economist at Spotify and grew to actually appreciate their product even greater. Uh, of course our, our podcast is also posted to Spotify. So that's great too. Uh, But what they learn about us in terms of music selection and what they're able to uh, send us so that it opens new doors, new windows to things that we might be interested in. And then uh, also uh, a great presentation by Candace Hogan, uh, who has the title at, at Uber as head of the Applied Behavioral Science Team. And she she has a PhD in psychology from Stanford, and uh, and sort of got into you know the fact that we have the tracking of the car and the tracking of the car actually makes us more patient that we can actually see that on a screen and sort of the calculus behind all of that is just really fascinating and even how they follow up rather than asking for the tip right away, but asking for the tip afterwards, all of those things are things that are rooted in behavioral science. Similarly, the other other speaker I really enjoyed is Dr. Stephanie Johnson. She's at the University of Colorado, uh, and uh, she's an associate professor of leadership. Uh, But she had some great insights around uses of behavioral science uh, towards the goal of greater diversity and inclusion. Uh, each of these people has written and and spoken in other places. I encourage, again, our listeners
1: to to, to look out for those individuals, because I think there's lots to learn from. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I was at this conference for educators, academics, um, who teach uh, journalism, mass communication, and it was really terrific. I was on a panel about the disinformation era with some journalists and, and other uh, professors, I was sort of representing the corporate point of view. But you'd be amazed at some of the research that's going on using things like blockchain to identify mm-hmm. the source of information. You know, blockchain mm-hmm. typically sort mm-hmm. of as a supply chain kind of tool. And But if you can do it for your supplies, your vendors, why couldn't you do it also with your, uh, the information that you're gathering to ensure that it's from a quality uh, source, and I did sense from the academics, uh, particularly who were presenting uh, research that they had done, the difficulty they have today in presenting uh, the results of their research, because obviously a lot of that language comes out through in in mathematics and numbers and probabilities yeah. and survey results, and so. There's a real thirst on the part of these researchers for translation, for translation into language that um, their research um, can be uh, adopted, used, learned, all of the things. And and, uh, so to me, that marriage of you and I, right, as practitioners and people who have used words, at a place like BU, which is a research university, I think, Mm-hmm. Yep. Is a is a really good uh, strategy for universities going forward to have folks who well, know yeah. how to express yeah. things and 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 great researchers at the same time.
2: Yeah, it, it, and it's interesting, and, and and one of the questions we'll want to ask um, uh, our 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 guest today and Joe Nacera is kind of where does he see uh, the skill set going in journalism and what will people be looking yeah. for. But, you know, when we think about this from a communications perspective, uh, you know, you and, uh, a few others, but you were the, you were the head at the time of, uh, the pay society, uh, when we did the report on, uh, the new DCO. And I can remember, uh, when, uh, John Awada and you and myself and, uh, Richard Edelman, uh, we're kind of on a platform together. And someone asked me, they said, so uh, who's what position? If you have an extra position to hire for, who, who's what type of person is going to be in that next position? And I said, I'm going to go yeah. hire a data analyst, a data analyst. And, uh, and, you know, if we look at what we're seeing. Yes, we still need people who are good storytellers. We need people who are problem solvers. But to do that well in today's environment means you're going to have to have both right brain, left brain. You're going to have to be able to understand the world of data and numbers. And then on the other hand, also be able to uh, be a good communicator, both orally and in written word.
1: Exactly. Terrific. Well, listen, you know, I hope you enjoyed your summer. I, I know you've been busy. Uh, Crazy busy, and and, but I'm really looking forward to uh, us getting back. It'll be great. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Our guest today on The cross is one of the most respected voices in journalism, Joe Nassara. Joe's a columnist these days for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, obviously writing about uh, business. Uh, Joe has written columns for Esquire GQ. He was uh, a member of the New York Times op-ed page for a while. Um, he, his latest project is uh, a terrific podcast. Uh, the Shrink Next Door, which in a word is wild, Joe. And I, I want to talk about that in a, in a few minutes. And Joe's the author of several books. Uh, the one that I remember most and enjoyed really was uh, his book about the NCAA uh, indentured, the inside story about the rebellion against the NCAA and, and some of the issues related to the amateur status of athletes and uh, how the NCAA uh, so uh welcome to the Crust, Joe.
0: Uh thank you for having me.
1: I appreciate it. Yeah. So most importantly, you are a graduate of Boston University's journalism program and we're we're here in the BU studio. Uh tell us uh about your time at when were you here uh at, at BU? What was it like and what'd you learn, Joe?
0: Uh well uh, <laughs> I have to laugh because uh, I came in. I was a freshman in nineteen seventy. That was the same year John Silver started as president of Boston University. Right. Ah. Uh, and so there are two things that uh, you know. Number one was, you know, as a, as a student journalist, um, we hated Silver. Hated, 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 and. Um, <laughs> Um, torturing him. Why? Sprint was why. Uh, pretty much what we why we live what we live to do. Oh, uh, because he was busy why? trying to fire all. He, he was busy trying to fire all the liberal professors. And um, uh, and, and and uh and, <laughs> and but you know he still Look, I couldn't get into BU today. Honestly, uh, it was a second. It was it was not. We couldn't either. By not the way, what it is today. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. <laughs> So I was—I guess I'm glad I went. I got as like glad I went when I did.
1: That's great. (laughs) And and you were a journalism major, obviously. And yeah, I was a math. I
0: was I was in the math department for two years, and then I realized that uh, I was never going to be able to cut it in math, so I switched to journalism. (laughs) Switched from numbers (laughs) to words. So so business journalism
2: kind of married the two
0: together, right? (laughs) <laughs> no, no. Uh, to this day, to this day, I can. I still struggle to read a balance sheet. Uh, although uh, having access to the Bloomberg terminal certainly makes it much easier. Yeah, it sure does.
2: <laughs> well, we sure really does. appreciate you joining
0: us on the crux.
2: But I, I have to ask you about your latest column, your Bloomberg column on Jeffrey Epstein, uh, and you know who apparently committed suicide in in federal prison, after all of these uh, sexual charges, your column, uh, which actually appeared before his death, focused on Epstein's businesses, his foundation, and ultimately how he got so rich. So, what did you find? And and, and kind of even a follow-on to that is: Are we going to know enough about what happened now that he's no longer here?
0: Um, number one, I think we will know because. I mean, there's really nobody who's going to be able to block the information. The 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 Feds are going to have access to all the information. Um, I have, I understand that his longtime lawyers, who are signatories on a lot of his documents, uh, both have criminal law have criminal defense attorneys now. But the the, the record, it, it's there's pretty much no way. Uh, this is going to remain hidden forever. Now, let me just say something. Uh, my column uh, was based on information gleaned in uh, uh, SEC documents uh, hmm. related related to uh, the limited, you know, Jeff, uh, Leslie mm-hmm. Wexner's company yeah, called, oh, right, called right. Brand, yeah. and also uh, a 990s, which is the uh, information, you know, basically government information that charities uh, have to. Yeah. Non-profits have to file over here. So he, he, they show transactions in the tens of millions of dollars, but they don't show transactions in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, Epstein, you know, there's a lot of suspicious stuff. For instance, Epstein has one charity where the only contributor is Les Wexner, $21 million right. over two years. That's the hmm. only person who made a contribution to it. And he uses it to dole out money to his various uh, pet pet causes. But but you don't. The guy says he's worth five hundred million dollars. You know, it's you know four parcels of property, including an eighty-acre ranch in Santa Fe, one of the most expensive mansions in New York City, and two islands in the Virgin Islands. <laughs> the kind of money, the kind of money flow that you see in the public record. Don't begin to explain how he got that kind of money, and so yeah, exactly. um, it, it remains. It, it fundamentally still remains a mystery, um, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it, it, people have people so, have theories, so you, but, but nobody really knows.
2: So, 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 do you have a sense that maybe he had information on people,
0: or 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 how else might he have? Right, I do. That I, I yes, yeah. I mean, you certainly have a sense that he. That he had information on, uh, on people. One of the things that we discovered over the weekend, when um, the day before he died, you know, uh, a treasure trove of documents were released uh, or that right. had been under seal by the court. So one of the mm-hmm. things uh, one of his accusers says is that you know after he would send her in to have sex with somebody because she was a sex slave, mm-hmm. he would then quiz he would then quiz her on what they liked and didn't like, sexually. Mm-hmm. And so one assumes that he was using that information to extract money from up. people, but you don't, I mean, we don't really know, but that, I mean, of course, that's what I would assume, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's so, no proof at this point.
1: So, Joe, how does somebody like that,
0: who has so many
1: friends in high places and was known to the social community in in New York and in Florida, I mean, how does somebody like this, I'm just amazed that he operated in the shadows for so long, not only from a business standpoint, but from obviously um, what he was doing with these young women. You
0: know, you use the word shadows to me, it's like hidden in plain sight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like, I mean, if you read the Vanity Fair story in 2003, 2003, there were references to young women. He likes young girls. And right. as, we all, as we all know, as we know now, Vicky Ward, the author of that story, had stuff in there about him having sex with underage girls. And Graydon Carter took it out. Right. And said that she didn't have enough proof. So, I mean, the point is, people have known this for a long time. People have known it, and nobody's been willing to, to blow the whistle or say anything or do anything about it until, you know, the the, the Palm Beach police started to find out in 2006 or so. When, yeah, when one great. of the one of the women, one of the girls broke away and went to the cops, oh, her mother or father went to the cops and said, this is what happened to my daughter, and that's how they started investigating. But, you know, well, the... the He's been, just one, one last thing. He's been, when he was indicted in New York, it was based on events that took place in, in, in 2002 to 2005. But in fact, you can find women who say they were sexually abused by Epstein as, as long ago as the mid 90s. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of odd terms here, including
2: his relationship with the British socialite. Uh, what's, what's her name? Maxwell?
0: Yes, uh, Ghislaine, Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, right, who was his girlfriend and actually his procurer? When you really want to get down to it, she used to scour the streets of New York and Florida, looking for yeah. underage, good-looking underage women that they could she could bring into the network. Incredible. Such, Incredible! such a sad and 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 sordid story. Yes, it, uh, it is.
1: Speaking speaking of which, uh, I'm, I want to talk about something now that's quite painful for me. And that's the situation at GE. Yeah, <laughs> where you know, Joe, I worked for many years, and you know, full disclosure, I, I still work uh, for the former CEO Jeff Jeff Immel. And and I want to frame this question, Joe, in in what I've observed about you and your and your work, and and maybe you can agree or disagree with me on it. But I think, Joe, it's safe to say, in my mind, that you're a contrarian um, um, with some other yeah, things you yeah, see in business journals. Yeah.
0: But, but, not and a teacher, so, but
1: not a deter contrarian. Correct. Correct. And <laughs> and so you recently <laughs> took a look. Recently, you took a look at Jack Welch, who, of course, Fortune magazine, when he left GE, named manager of the century. And Jack is, you know, one of the rock stars, I guess, of the business world. Still is, even given GE's trouble. So you wrote a a piece about whether uh, Jack was as good as everyone thought. And so, what did what did you find, and what's your what's your reading on that?
0: Um, my reading is that uh, he was overrated. Um, mm-hmm. I basically mean, I basically wound up thinking that probably was a good CEO, but that he his mentality, which is the shareholder, you know, that the stock, you know, that, that, that you're measured by the stock price. <laughs> Happened to coincide exactly with the greatest bull market of our lifetime, nineteen eighty-two right. to two thousand. And that, uh, if you look at, I, the one of the things that struck me is I looked at the obit of his predecessor, um, Reg Jones.
2: And yes,
0: In the obit, yeah. the bit it says that during, he was considered in his time the you know the the, the, most, the highest profile, most important you know leader in corporate America. And yet, right. he was. The article, the article said the stock went down nine percent during his time in office. Mm-hmm. And, the, and then the that's article really. went on to say. The article went on to say, but you know that's because everybody's stock went down. It's like that. You know, we were in a tough time. And the article basically got him off the hook. <laughs> you know, right. the stock went down nine. If a guy was in office ten years and the stock went down nine percent, now he'd have been fired. You know, eight years earlier. That doesn't that's happen right. anymore. So I mean Welch and then and then the the, the thing that I noticed also was that um, starting in May two thousand or March two thousand when the bull market ended and the tech stock started to you know, Nasdaq started to collapse and so on, if you look at GE stock, you know, Jack Welch did not defy that market. The GE right. stock was his the last year and a half of his uh tenure, the stock was down significantly. Um so you know, how much was it, Jack Welch, and how much was it just grabbing onto the tail of the bull market? I think you could say the same about Roberto Guzueta at Coke, mm-hmm. right? Had, yeah. Who had the who had the, who had the exact same mentality, and of course he died before the bull market ended. Uh, but his pre, his successors have had struggled mightily uh, with the stock price. Uh, even though Coca-Cola remains the uh, you know the, the the soft drink behemoth,
1: right? Yeah. Now, now go yeah. to and I think that
0: all makes sense. To be fair, I, I should ask you,
1: you know, the GE story today is you know one of the is a one of the great business stories from a and the situation it's in from this iconic company to uh, being dropped from the Dow and and the stock right. being in single digits. So bring us up to What do you think today? Uh, about the company's situation,
0: and I, um, you know, I, I, I hate to tell you this, I don't have a strong opinion. I guess, I guess, I, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for GE to succeed without having to break into it, to its, break up, break it up completely, and this great right. iconic company vanish from the face of the earth. So I would love to see the guy, Bill and Paul, be able to fix this thing. Whether it can right. be fixed, whether it makes sense to be fixed, I don't, I don't really know. I mean. You know, conglomerates are such funny things because, uh, you know, they work until they stop working.
2: The that's idea right. that, yeah. you know,
0: uh, that one part is down, but the rest are up. And so, you know, that props up the one that's, you know, poorly performing. But, you know, when you get into a situation where you're an industrial company and, 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 and everything is not working at once, you know, you just kind of wonder if they're better off selling off the. Various divisions to uh, other companies that have expertise yeah, exactly. in those areas. Well, believe yeah. me, I'm
1: with you. I'm with you, Joe. I, I'm, I say novena every night for GE. <laughs> my... <laughs> I, God, go I,
0: haven't, so I haven't heard anybody say the word novena since my grandmother died.
2: <laughs> there you go. So, 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 sort of tacking on to this thought pattern. You you talked about being a knee-jerk contrarian, and one of the things I often have admired about your writing, whether it was in the early days with Texas Monthly and Newsweek or uh, when you were writing your Profit Motive uh, column and then later with Fortune and New York Times, is you seem to approach subjects in a way that you never quite believe the subject, either... It's never as good as they say, and it's never as bad as they say. What's kind of the genesis, or what creates that skepticism or that point of view as you're
0: covering these business stories? Um, I think of myself, not as a centrist, but as a pragmatist, Mm -hmm. what works. Mm -hmm. And that, that often drives my thought process. So the best example I can give you of that is that is, is my support for for vaping, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, you know, if you think about it, you know, when you actually learn about it, we're in the midst mm-hmm. of a nicotine nicotine hysteria right now, based around the idea that high school kids are sm- are, are vaping jewel, you know, jewel that that right. cool looking, yeah, right. So, uh, you know, number one you know, does nicotine kill you? The answer is no. What kills you is combusted tobacco. Mm -hmm. And so I find, I'm bewildered actually, that the public health community is so anti-vaping because they really should be saying, look, we don't want kids to use this thing, but if you're an adult smoker Mm -hmm. and you can switch to this product, you have a mm-hmm. chance of living another 10 or 20 years this can save your exactly. life exactly
1: so essentially you're saying
0: that
2: the the, it, the
0: the
2: getting rid of the tar is is better than the nicotine
0: yes the you know they say what they always say is you know t- nicotine addicts but tar kills. Mm-hmm. so you know if you can get the nicotine Without the tar, yeah, it's not great to have an addictive habit like that, but nicotine is not going to kill you, and it's really not really going to harm you. I mean, when you think about it, they talk about how nicotine damages the brain, yada, yada, yada. Well, if that was true, everybody in the 50s and 60s would be brain dead because they've smoked their brains out.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, so,
0: I mean... Now, that's yeah. just an example of, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian. I'm, trying to, I'm a contrarian, because right. I, I, yeah. I, I think the world is thinking about this in the wrong way.
2: Right. Well, and, and what I always admired about you, I mean, you would take on uh, sometimes uh, giants. I mean, I, I remember some of the articles you wrote about Steve Jobs, when in a lot of people's eyes he was a hero. Uh, I can remember you taking on the likes of Michael Milken and Enron before those two houses crumbled. Um, and it's it, it's intriguing to me as to how you go about peeling away the layers to really better understand your subject.
0: Well, I mean that's reporting. I guess I, I guess. Yep. I guess... I mean, I sort of learned this from Charlie Peters at the Washington Monthly when I was very, very young, which is, you know, mm-hmm. learn to think for yourself. Learn to think for yourself. Yeah. So there's yeah. two things that happen. There are two things that happened with me. Yeah. You know, I mean, take the case of Milken. That's a really good example. I actually wrote about him when he was in prison. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and he was generally portrayed as the worst financial criminal of all time. So mm-hmm. the idea pops into my mind. The thought pops into my mind: Is this true? Does he deserve mm-hmm. ten years in prison? So then mm-hmm. I do reporting. You know, I start to make phone calls. I call people. I ask, and, and 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 I wind up in a different place than a lot of other people do, just because you know I have this thought and I'm pursuing it. And sometimes I'm right with thoughts, and sometimes I'm wrong with these thoughts. But there's a case where I wound up thinking, you know what, the two years he got, that's just about right for what he did. He wasn't the greatest financial mm-hmm. criminal yes. of all time. Yeah. Um, he, he did it's some like, bad stuff, but
1: you know, Joe. That, that raises that, the question. That, that that raises the question about so why why are these issues so often in journalism? I and mean, this is my you know my thought. Why are things so often so black and white, um, and not presented in a way? Let's say with the jewel um, situation. Where jewel is a villain, um, you know. You can go down the list of, of um, you know, the the CEOs and companies that have done things wrong. Look at look at cycle this week, um, because the yeah. the CEO is is uh, doing a fundraiser for Trump. Does the business does business journalism do a good enough job of getting to the essence of things? Or maybe journalism more broadly, or are they playing into this sort of blame and shame? Um, environment that we have.
0: Well, um, that's that's a hard that's hard to answer. I mean, I do think that newspapers, especially news stories, you know, are are, are ill equipped to deal with nuance, um, mm-hmm. just by the, the nature of the beast, which is you know you you're simply trying to get information out. You're trying to present it. Uh, you're not you're not necessarily able to give it context, and context I think is something that. Uh, magazines do better than newspapers. Books do better than magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, you need you need space. You need mm-hmm. you, yeah. you, you need room. You need some room to create context. And, and and context is often where you come to the realization that something is overstated, or something that's understated, something is 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 misstated. Once you start to understand the context, so I'm a big believer in. Um, uh, presenting context. And that's why when I wrote a business column for the New York Times, I mean, I wrote a 1,500 business column. I mean, that's long. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. reason is I, I always wanted to tell the backstory. I always wanted to say, you know, here's how to understand this. Not just what the facts are, but here's, here's, a, way of, here's a way of framing it so you can understand it better when you read other stories about it. And, 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 and that's kind of the way I try to approach my job.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the groups that was interesting to me that you took on at a time when, like again, a lot of people treated them as as heroes, and and you have a chapter, and and the book was a collection of uh, of a lot of these essays uh, or pieces that you wrote. But in good guys and bad guys, you take on the lawyers, and I think the chapter is called "The Lawyers from Hell." and you talk right. about litigators and tort lawyers. Um, what, what got you into a frame of mind where you felt they needed to be exposed?
0: Well, um, actually, what, that was just a, 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 an example of my curiosity leading me to an interesting place. Mm-hmm. I, had just been hired, I had just been hired by Fortune, and I was looking for my first big store. And I saw a small item... Maybe it wasn't that small. I can't remember. I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal that basically said that Dow Corning, which was under assault for the silicon breast implant thing, had Mm -hmm. filed for bankruptcy, had filed for bankruptcy. (laughs) And it was like, I just thought to myself, how could lawsuits cause a company to file for bankruptcy? I just didn't, you know, I I didn't really Mm -hmm. uh, uh, understand it. So I, you know, I just started to dive in and learn about the company and learn about the product and learn about the lawsuits. And I wound up thinking that these guys that this was a kind of legal assault on a company with very little science or proof, and that they were bringing this company to to its knees simply based on the sheer number of lawsuits that the mm-hmm. company couldn't handle twenty or thirty thousand lawsuits. And, 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 and ultimately, you know, the Dow Corning wound up paying $4 billion to make it go away. But they, they, they had a science trial, and I believe Dow Corning won. Yeah. So, so that got me thinking. That that was my first uh, uh, example. That was the first time I'd ever really uh, did a, done a deep dive on the plaintiff's bar and a plaintiff's lawyer. And it definitely mm-hmm. shaped my thinking uh, for years to come. Uh, as I wrote about other plaintiffs' lawyers and other situations, then I I brought to those stories the skepticism that I developed from doing that first Fortune story.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's yeah. amazing, and and
1: and it continues to be an uh, a story today for folks like J and J with the talc issue and right uh, the Roundup verdict
0: uh, still well the Roundup um, right the Roundup thing is interesting because I think there's a decent chance that Roundup will turn out to be a carcinogen if it's used right. in high doses. So then mm-hmm. so then the question is, are the plaintiffs are the plaintiffs just gonna take their plaintiffs lawyers going to take their money and walk away? Or, I mean if the thing really does harm people, is there going to be a demand that the product be be taken away from the market be be uh, right. you know, removed from so the, the marketplace. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean the talk thing seems ridiculous to me. But again, I haven't done a deep dive on the talk, so I, I, I can't positively yeah. say that talc does not right. cause ovarian cancer, but it seems on right. 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 Well,
2: you know, it, it is kind of interesting. So we've talked a little bit about kind of negative stories involving corporations. And now we've kind of seen this wave too of whether it's the companies or the publishers for those companies the PR people for those companies or the CEOs themselves trying to take on a posture that uh, for lack of a better term, and actually, the term I think was first used in a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago was CEO activism. You know, so we've got right. you know like Tim Cook at Apple, we've got Howard Schultz when he was at Starbucks, and Fraser at Merck, um, have gotten on the bandwagon and become kind of spokespersons for different social issues. As someone right. who's watched. Kind of public expectations uh, about business over the years. Do you think this is a good thing that business is doing?
0: Um, I think it's an understandable thing. Uh, and <laughs> I, and I, Tim Cook's a good one to focus on. And I, so, um, millennials are uh, generally liberal, social liberals, whatever their politics right. are. They're social liberals. You know uh on issues like immigration or or discrimination or diversity um, uh, lb lbg uh, issues mm-hmm. they're you know they they tend to be very tolerant mm-hmm. so if if you're if you're a young workforce and you want your employees to feel like you're on their, they're working for a company that's on the right side of things you're, you there's no downside in coming out. Uh, uh, publicly on these issues, um, is it possible that somebody could start a boycott of apple? nah, maybe, but it wouldn't be successful um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so uh, being on the right side of social issues for uh, uh for a company in an environment that's you know basically socially liberal anyway there's not a yep. lot of downside and and it has the added advantage of giving the employees. A sense that they have a that their company exists for purposes that go beyond merely the selling of iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. And and so oh, really? and, 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 and Howard Schultz class. always used, Howard Schultz used to talk about this all the time that it was really important for his employees to believe that they that they were they that being at Starbucks meant you were doing you weren't just selling coffee you were spreading a kind of um, uh, uh, gospel of uh diversity and non discrimination mm-hmm. uh et cetera mm-hmm. et cetera yeah well i would say I, I think
1: you're i i think you're right it, it here's where i see anyway the the danger coming in joe is is um you look at a guy like Randall stevenson at a t and t um gave a really important speech i thought on diversity uh in the business world it, it, this was a couple of years ago now. And uh, there's been some reporting recently uh, about AT&T and support for senators and members of Congress who are anti-LGBTQ, right, where they're supporting candidates and politicians who have a different view. And that sort of whipsaws their employees and, and leads to some erosion in trust. So I think you're generally right. But you have to be. Employees particularly are expecting right. you to be consistent.
0: Joe is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. No, I, I I I generally agree with you. I've noticed. Um, is it? Is there are ways. Right, and there are also ways where you have to sort of tell the employees. You know, like Google. There's some deal that Google has with the federal government that uh, its yeah. employees, many of its employees, want them to stop doing because it's you know. And, and you know, at yes. some point, I mean, I feel like the Google CEO should just say, you know, hey, fellas, you know, you don't want to work here, you don't have to work here, but but you know, we're not anti. <laughs> well, we're not anti. We're not anti the federal government generally.
1: Yeah. We're well, crazy, you've seen you know? it at, at Wayfair, Joe, where the employees sort of revolted because they were selling items for some of the detention centers on the border.
0: Yeah, um, that's right. That that's kind right. of thing that's as
1: right. well too. That kind of thing as well too. So I, I want to get to you to your podcast. Um, yeah, and I didn't know I didn't know that you had done one. It it is really terrific, and it's Thank called you. The Shrink Next Door, and it's done in partnership Bloomberg and Wondery, which uh, I wish we had your production value uh, for the Crocs that you have. <laughs> but it's a it is a wild, engrossing story. I'm only a few um, episodes into it, but um, it's it's your own it personal story as neighbor, well, too. Right?
0: Right, so yeah, it involved, 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 yeah, involved my next-door neighbor, yeah, that's right. The first year, Did I mean, say this very, yeah, this, the, uh, the origins of it are that in 2010, I bought a house and I thought that the person who lived next door was a, was, it was a summer house. And I thought the person who lived next door was a shrink and that this little guy who I see up there all the time, dressed in green, was his caretaker slash gardener.
1: A year later,
0: when I come back for the next summer, the shrink's gone. And the little guy comes over to my house with his sister. <laughs> excuse me, with a woman. And he says, Joe, I want you to meet my sister Phyllis. I haven't seen her in 27 years. And, it, and then he says, "He says that was never his house. That's my house. And then he says, I was never his caretaker. I was his patient. <laughs> so... Wow. Uh, I don't really need to say more than that. I'd say uh, yeah, you, uh, no, exactly. Yeah, we got to just once, we just have to encourage he, people to go listen. <laughs> yeah, once he once he told me that, I was hooked and I wanted to know more. So yeah. um, so, so uh, that, that that sent me on this that sent me on this path.
1: What? Why do a podcast? You're a word guy, right? A written word guy. So I'm just curious. Why do a podcast rather than a magazine piece or even uh, a book? I mean, it's such an incredible story. And I won't say more about it myself, well, but why
0: did you decide to do a podcast? Well, first of all, I did do a story. I did do a magazine story oh, did? for the New York okay. Times. But it was but it was not published. Uh, it was oh. pulled three days it was pulled three days before it was gonna be on the cover. And um uh, why uh it, it's not worth getting into, but uh, you know, I was devastated and, and I then couldn't really I didn't have the um what's the right word? The uh um I didn't have the mindset to go back at it and make all the changes that they wanted made. I just kind of gave up. So I put it in my bottom drawer for about five years and then uh, when this podcast opportunity came along, I I brought it back out. I showed it to Bloomberg. They got excited. They showed it to Wondery. Wondery got excited and and so on and so forth. Now let me just say, I think the podcast is way better than the magazine story ever was. Uh, (laughs) um, I'm so glad I got to do it as a podcast. It, 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 there's a suppleness to the podcast. There's a ability yes. to um, to move from direction to direction that wouldn't work in a magazine story. Um, a book, I don't know. I mean, I may. I actually am talking to somebody very soon about the possibility of doing it as a book. So we shall see. But I am. I and, and also, by the way, just because you've spoken doesn't mean it hasn't been written. I mean, the podcast right. is a right. The podcast is very much a writer's medium, um, and um, uh, you know sense, we yeah. wrote we wrote the, we wrote the hell out of this thing. Uh, the, first, yeah. the first episode went through twenty-seven drafts. I noticed. Oh my goodness! Day. So you know we sweated over this thing. We sweated over every word. Well, it's really see, Gary, good and things. I would we'll
2: never put... have a podcast with that many edits. We But what we should share with our, our listeners, Gary, is at least in the early part of the summer, the Shrink Next Door was the number one podcast on iTunes. Yeah,
0: for three weeks, for it, three it, weeks on Apple Podcasts.
1: That's right. That's right. You, and we'll we'll put a link to it on uh, on our little site, The Croc. Yes, right, Jeff, do. It is.
0: It is. It is fantastic. And it will be coming to a streaming service near you at some point because I think there's going to be a movie. Oh wow, that's oh. great! That's great. That's right. And and, okay. and so who's going to play you? Who would you like to play you, Joe? I, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 you know, what? just give me just give me the check, and you can have it that <laughs> you right.
2: want. Actually, probably right. the more interesting question would be: Who does your wife want to play her? <laughs> I don't, so, hey, before uh, we close I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but before yeah. we close, any advice for uh, today's BU journalism students What about what it takes well, to succeed in the industry?
0: I, I would say, um, I, I'm going to say two conflicting things. Um, <laughs> one, I think it's really, really helpful to have to come out of college with a specialty. Whether it's mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. journalism or business journalism or political journalism, you know that that you really um, you got a leg up if you could say I really know a subject very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think some degree of specialization is super helpful. On the flip side, I would say that you really need to be multi. You you need to have multiple skills. Mm-hmm. So you know you need to be able to shoot a video you you know and and edit mm-hmm. it you need to be able to take a photograph you need to be able to write you need to be able to do a podcast you know all of these you know today uh there's so many of the journalists at the New York Times today don't write they're they're internet specialists they're social mm-hmm. media specialists they you mm-hmm. know they're 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 doing that kind of work um um you know, especially as us old folks gradually mm-hmm. retire or leave. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would I would say, you know, it, if you could take as many classes and as many different disciplines of journalism uh, as mm-hmm. you can, uh, that will stand you in good stead. Yeah.
2: Well, also, there's an inter- one of the interesting things to me. A lot of your earlier writing, like when you started with Washington Monthly and Texas Monthly, a lot of that was more politically oriented, if I remember correctly. How did you move move into kind of... That's not right? It was always kind of business and economics? Well, no.
0: At Washington Monthly, uh, uh, you know, I wrote about politics, but not as much as other people did. I learned Mm -hmm. about business writing when I moved to Texas, and I wrote a big profile (laughs) of Boone Pickens when he was doing his first deal, and that's how I got interested in Mm -hmm. business journalism. And that's when I started to uh, specialize in business. That's
1: good. That's good. Yes, yeah. Boone, Boone is always a great story. He's always a great story. Well, yep. Joe, thank That's you so sure. much. This has been, this has been fascinating, and we got to get you out to BU uh, soon. Um, and, uh, I'm so happy to, I'm we'll happy be, to come. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And so, thanks for being on the Crux, Mike.
0: Thanks. For a great interview. All right. Well, thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate well, it. Well, hey,
1: Joe. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you for thank doing care.
0: it. All right. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.